It's Thursday, October 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Taylor Muckerman, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Happy Thursday, gents. Same to you. Happy Thursday. It is kind of a happy Thursday, at least in the market. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk restaurants, we're going to talk hotels, but let's start with the market because all the major indices up more than 1% this morning on the news that there is some sign of progress across the river in Washington, D.C. At least a heartbeat. A heartbeat of progress. Uh, And the story, Taylor, is that the Republicans in the House are going to put forth a a short-term increase to the government's borrowing authority. So we'll push that October 17th deadline back another four weeks or Mm -hmm. six weeks, that sort of thing. That's nice. Certainly a nice morning in the markets. But... I have to ask, doesn't that just delay the inevitable? Doesn't that just mean a month from now we're going to be back to, well, we have the deadline coming up? Yeah, I think that's their point. I mean, it kind of allows them to buy a little bit more time to debate uh, the Affordable Health Care Act and try and get the the spending limits cut there. And then also, you know, at least it draws a hard line or a semi-hard line in the sand with the six weeks because they were kind of fearing that the Democrats might push the the debt ceiling debate past that because it does allow for that in, in in law, so I think they're just trying to draw that semi-hard line in the sand, which could be good for us. It, at least it uh, pushes them um, a little bit harder once that does that does uh, start to arise. We had Jack Lou, the uh, Treasury Secretary, up on Capitol Hill. I think it was this morning, maybe it was yesterday, but heard a report this morning that he was essentially picking apart this notion that, well, if we d- if we go past the October seventeenth deadline, we can just cherry pick the things <laughs> we're going to pay for. And he was he was basically saying. Okay, so so do we pay the people who are on Social Security, or do we pay the people in China who hold our bonds? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's so, just, he just completely shot holes in it. Yeah, that. well, there's this priority list, right? I mean, we owe a lot of people a lot of money, and uh, it, it, I mean, what what they have what they have done to this point has just been almost. I mean, I, I just think it's been insulting, really, for for Americans in general. Certainly, people who uh, have federal uh, government jobs, people who are dependent on. Uh, whatever sort of program they may be on, uh, you know, it, I just don't see why I don't see why they can't get into a room and at least negotiate and figure out a way to work things out. Because I mean, yesterday I was watching uh, just a little bit online there where you would have like one press conference of the president at like one thirty or two, and, and then at four thirty a pres- uh, press conference with uh, Boehner, and they're both at odds. But I mean, why can't they just get on the same stage like? Where you and I are right here, say, hey, well, Chris, I want this. And you'd be like, well, Jason, I want that. And then we can negotiate in front of the entire American public. And there's some transparency there because right now it is a tit for tat. You blame one party, you blame the other. But nobody really knows because there's no transparency there. Right. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, they're going to kick this can down the road. At least if they could get federal employees back to work and pay them retroactively, Mm -hmm. then they can prepare for the next shutdown that's most certainly getting ready to come. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, they're supposed to meet, House Republicans are supposed to meet with Obama today, but I think that's just to discuss this six week. Uh, extension of the debt ceiling, not really trying to talk about uh, the current problems with the shutdown. And then, you know, taxpayers aren't really getting a very good return on their investment because this promise of back pay, while they're not working, I mean, I just this, this paid vacation, essentially, it, while we don't look at it like that, essentially that's what it is because we're not getting anything out of this money that they're guaranteeing uh, workers that aren't providing any output right now. And it's not to say that they wouldn't be if they were working. It's just, it's not their fault, unfortunately. Did you see the story of the uh, guy yesterday who went and, like, cut the grass at the, I think it was the Lincoln Memorial? Lincoln Memorial, yeah. Oh, no, South Carolina guy, man. Yeah. He's actually, he's from my hometown. Really? Yeah. It's like, 
big props. Were you, nice out, there, job, were you out there helping him? I was not, but I was, <laughs> I was certainly with him in spirit. You know, you feel like just sort of thumbing your nose at these idiots in D.C., and that yeah. was maybe one one sort of uh, respectful way to do it. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought that was a nice story. And, and But at the other end of the spectrum, I heard this report that I just thought, okay, this is, this is mildly scary. And it was about the number of federal em- employees who have been furloughed who work in nuclear uh, uh, plant mm-hmm. safety. And it's <laughs> essentially the majority of people. It's something like 80% of them are, are not on the job. And I just thought, well, where is the closest nuclear yeah. power plant to where <laughs> I am at this point in time? The FDA as well. You have to worry about food safety while this government shutdown is going on. All right. Springfield. It makes you wonder how they classify essential personnel with yeah. all the, the... Yeah. I'm 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 just going to count people who work in safety at nuclear power yeah. plants. Those are essential to me. <laughs> a lot more essential than the people that aren't producing anything on Capitol Hill. Uh, yeah, again, worth pointing out, members of Congress still getting paid. <laughs> uh, let's move on to restaurants. A couple in the news. Ruby Tuesday's down 18% this morning. First quarter results were in a word terrible and they are expecting <laughs> Don't cupcake, Chris. <laughs> and they are expecting second quarter comps to drop in the high single digits not surprisingly the stock is at a new 52 week low we talk about operators and fast casual and that sort of thing I, i'm i'm surprised at this only from this standpoint that the point has been made time and time again that the big revenue driver for restaurants is alcohol mm-hmm. and ruby tuesdays Unlike Chipotle, unlike Panera, serves alcohol. Well, Chipotle serves alcohol. I mean, do they? Be- well, beer yeah, yeah. just a couple beers and a margarita. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But I, I don't think I'm people. Go, I don't think people are going there to a, saddle uh, up at the at the be- at the booth. To, as so, uh, yeah, exactly. Correct. As yeah. someone who enjoys bourbon, I just say <laughs> yeah, it's not alcohol. They don't really serve alcohol. But uh, are they just that bad an operator that they're putting up these kind of results? Well, when was the last time you went to a Ruby Tuesday? Good question. See, so the problem that these restaurants face it's twofold. Number one, it's it's the spread of the the fast casuals, so your Chipotle's and your uh, Elevation Burgers, places like that that are offering a great meal at a at a better price and still a, a relatively uh, decent environment, at least better than something like like a McDonald's. Uh, they're taking a lot of sort of this casual dining segment uh, traffic, and then you know these these restaurants like Ruby Tuesday are then faced with the specter of you know they have a pretty high fixed cost structure and that they have to keep these restaurants open. Mm -hmm. So they're paying to keep the lights on and the ovens cooking and the staff there. And with traffic down, you know, then their margins just get hammered. Right. And so basically, yeah, I mean, Ruby Tuesday, not a tremendous brand out there to begin with. Uh, Certainly a lot of better options out there. I I have to believe that uh, this is – Sort of the beginning of the end for Ruby. I don't know. I don't know why it should turn around. I mean, I don't see any real reason why it should. I also make no distinction between Ruby Tuesdays, TGI Fridays, Applebee's. They all seem about the same to me. They all seem that if that were an option, and there have been times. Mm-hmm. It's just been a while, but there have been times when I've gone into one. But to me, there's no difference. That unlimited salad bar. <laughs> that's what really sets them apart. <laughs> but I think you know what that reminds me of. We've talked a lot about before is the CVSs and Walgreens of the world. That's essentially just sort of a commodity thing. You're mm-hmm. just going to whichever one is closest. Mm-hmm. You don't really care. And those are very much the same way. I think you you hit the nail on the head there. It's just it's a matter of of where you are at whatever point in time and how desperate you are to eat and or go drink. Meanwhile, Darden Restaurants was up 7% yesterday on reports of an activist investor who's come in really pushing the notion that Darden needs to split, not the stock, but the company. Mm -hmm. This is the parent of 
Olive Garden, Red Lobster. They have others. I, I, those I are. Uh, do they have a steakhouse? They have like a Longhorn. Yeah, Capital Capital yeah. Grill and Yards. I think is another yeah. one. Do they own Capital Grill too? Yeah, yeah that's okay. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie V's up. out west. Yeah. Okay. So, is this a good idea? Is this a good plan? I personally think so. I mean, you're going to try and target a growth opportunity here with some of their higher end options, and then maybe create a more stable company with the Olive Garden and uh, and um, Red Lobster. Whether or not they provide that stability is a different story, but I think that's kind of what they're going after, provide investors with two different options. You've kind of seen the high-end spending market really kind of at least not suffer as, as far in the retail sector, so maybe that'll carry over into the restaurant sector as well. Yeah, I mean, a couple of stable, sort of well-known names in Olive Garden and Red Lobster, they could probably just kind of throw those on yeah. cruise control. Don't have to do much with them because they've been around for a while, and then they sort of have an established customer base and give them a chance maybe to uh, invest a little bit more in their in their growing concepts, the higher-end uh, markets. You know, it's Darden has a, a whopping load of debt on the balance sheet. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of close to $3 billion or something really? like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it was not... Uh, it was not insignificant. Now they they have, you know, their their operating earnings cover their interest expense about four times over. But you know, given given the pressure that casual dining has been witnessing here lately, I mean, it's not just Ruby Tuesday, and uh, and so I could see where they might want to try to, you know, separate those entities and focus a little bit more on the on the growth prospects with a better future. How troublesome is debt on the balance sheet for you guys as investors? Whether it's we can move off of Darden, regardless of the company, because we've talked time and time again about how cash is cheap. So companies issuing debt, on the one hand, can be gosh, if you're going to issue debt, now's the time to do it because money is so cheap. But the flip side of that is it's not going to stay cheap forever. No. Yeah, my, I think my biggest point is uh, if it's variable or fixed. A lot of companies are taking out those. Those floating rate loans, and if if that is the case where rates start to spike, uh, my personal opinion is it won't ramp up too quickly. But it is inevitable that rates are going to go up. So I think you have to pay attention to the structure of their loans. Fixed debt may be a little bit better positioning because then they can, you know, refinance it or pay that off with cash flows if they're a stable company. But uh, the variable rate is definitely something that scares me uh, for a lot of companies out there. Yeah, and I, I think that it certainly depends on the market or the you know the the sector that you're talking about too. Because yeah, I mean, exactly. restaurants a lot of times restaurants don't really have that. Same sort of competitive advantage or moat that maybe a railroad has or something like that. You know, people can drop it just as quickly as they, as they started. Uh, so restaurants they they are not as predictable or dependable going forward. So you know, when you see a concept like a Chipotle that has done such a good job of deliberately opening restaurants and really stacking that balance sheet with a lot of cash and just funding their own growth, I mean that that's you know that to me when you're looking at restaurants is one of the key key first uh, things to look for. And Oppenheimer actually came out with a report a couple days ago about the master limited partnership boom in energy space. And those companies are highly reliant on debt. And so you kind of want to look at, like you mentioned, more stable companies that have the ability to pay that off if they can't refinance at a reasonable rate. And so uh, they had a pretty decent list of companies to watch out for. Lynn Energy, one of the more popular names on there that investors should be careful about. It also seems like yet another way to grade management. Because I have to believe that just like anything else, some some CEOs are a lot better at managing the dollars and cents of their company Agreed. than others are. No question. Just to close on restaurants, kind of a, a, a sad note, uh, on Twitter this morning, I saw the news that the Hilltop Steakhouse is closing. And for anyone in New England who's, who's ever been to Boston, uh, it, it is this iconic steakhouse on Route 1 north of Boston uh, with... 
uh, huge lines. You would drive. You, you would see people just lining up, waiting an hour at a time to go into this steakhouse. Obviously, not anymore because yeah. it's closing. But it also has this amazing sign. Uh, it's in the form of a cactus. So it's this huge neon cactus. And when I was a kid, if we were driving to Boston, it was nighttime. You come up over the hill and you see you see the <laughs> your home. The, the neon cactus is like, oh my god, it's <laughs> the, the beacon. Hilltop, it's the hilltop steakhouse. This is great. Any reason why family just wants to get out of the business? Uh, uh, I don't know. I think yeah. uh, I, I I didn't. Uh, I saw the news, but I didn't see the reasons yeah. why. But uh, my assumption is that uh, you know what was. Iconic and a must-go-to yep. location in the '70s, um, probably with increased competition over time. Um, but yeah, little little sadness there. Before we get to our final story, I should mention again: we are looking for summer interns. You can find the information on our company culture's blog, which is just culture.fool.com. 2014, summer 2014, we are looking for interns. So uh, if you know a college student or you are a college student, go ahead and apply. There's actually a video. Uh, six-minute video that our own Ann Henry put together uh, about the intern program. So um, really great information. Check it out. Final story, Marriott is taking its $12 billion market cap and moving from the New York Stock Exchange to the NASDAQ. It will keep the same ticker symbol, which is M-A-R. This takes effect on October 21st. We were talking a little bit about this before taping. This is a cost-cutting move, right? I mean, it's just cheaper to list on the NASDAQ the New York Stock Exchange. I'm not a Marriott shareholder. If I were, though, I would applaud this. Yeah. I yeah. mean, why not move to the NASDAQ? If It seems like the sort of thing that just doesn't matter where the shares are traded. I mean, it... it- it does and it doesn't. I mean, it depends on you know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I guess, right? And so, I mean, some some companies feel like there is a, a prestige. Sp- uh, companies level spending is... less money is beautiful <laughs> to me. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, with something on like some, a hotel, on definitely like focusing on items, costs yeah. is uh, is obviously a priority. And and I mean, it, it is something where you look at listing on the on the New York Stock Exchange is going to be you know close to about a quarter of a million dollars per year, and and the Nasdaq is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty to seventy five thousand. So it's it, there's a little bit of cost cutting there, but. I mean, ultimately, that's what it sounds like Marriott's management first and foremost was looking to do was to just uh, you know do the prudent thing, and they didn't feel like it was anything that would affect their business. In fact, I mean, it differentiates them from the perspective that I think most of their competitors will stay listed on the New York Stock Exchange. But uh, yeah, the Nasdaq is a bit more of a tech-focused mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, listing, where whereas New York Stock Exchange has a, a reputation for a little bit more sort of like the blue chip stalwart kind yeah. of you know listings. And but you know, Facebook was Nasdaq. Uh, LinkedIn is New York Stock Exchange. Twitter's talking about the New York Stock Exchange. Doesn't doesn't make one better than the other. It's just uh, you know have, they have their differences. If I were the person at the New York Stock Exchange who was responsible for getting companies, convincing companies to list on the New York Stock Exchange, I wouldn't go more than three minutes without mentioning the Facebook debacle. <laughs> yeah, for IPO because, purposes, because, yeah. that's a great because, selling point. Though. Because that's that's the only thing about this that I look at and I think, okay, because it, it uh, maybe it's just a perception thing, but it does seem like when there are problems, they happen with the Nasdaq. Yep. They, do, I know they have happened with the New York Stock Exchange, but it seems like the ones that leap to mind are always the one. 
uh, that happened on the NASDAQ. Yeah, it happened again this past August. Malfunctioning software caused halt, uh, trading to halt on thousands of stocks and options for uh, a couple hours, I believe. So, yeah, it's it's not abated. But so maybe this is a nice little tailwind for the NASDAQ to kind of pick up some more businesses, IPOs start to pick up. But this doesn't really speak to the IPO market because this is already a public right. company that's just switching over. So we'll, we've yet to see uh, an IPO the size of Facebook really try and move forward with NASDAQ. All right. Jason Moser, Taylor Mark and guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Gal Año Nuevo. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>